Welcome to Victor's Children, a podcast from so-called Canada talking socialism from below. My name is David Campfield. I live with my partner and cat in Winnipeg, Manitoba, which is in Treaty 1 territory, the traditional territory of Anishinaabeg, Cree, Oja Cree, Dakota, and Dene peoples, and the homeland of the Métis Nation. All those of us in the Canadian state who aren't Indigenous need to commit ourselves to the struggle against settler colonialism. Victor's Children is a member of the Harbinger Media Network, which is a community working to support and promote left podcasts in Canada. Check out other shows like Tech Won't Save Us, Anti-Girl Boss Socials Club, and Alberta Advantage. Uh, you can look at the show's list at harbingermedianetwork.com. So, in official politics, the world of legislatures and parliamentary elections, politicians, including those of what passes for the left in so-called Canada, the U.S., and beyond, often talk as if families are nothing but good and everyone lives in one. This is also true for most union leaders, leaders of LGBT organizations, and other prominent voices on the left in its broadest sense. I have in front of me, actually, the uh, winter 2022-2023 issue of Our Times, Canada's independent labor magazine, and on the back cover... There's an ad from the National Union of Public and General Employees, which says family. It's what we are and lists all the different provincial affiliates of NUPGI uh, and uh, describes family as the basic unit in society, people not related by blood, but who share deep and meaningful bonds, descendants of a common ancestor or fourth definition, a group of people united by certain convictions or a common affiliation. Uh, And this really stuck in my mind as I was reading Family Abolition, the book by Uh, Emmy O'Brien, which we're going to be discussing today. Of course, the reality of families is very different from the way that uh, they're depicted in official politics. Uh, In the book Family Abolition, Capitalism and the Communizing of Care, Emmy writes, the family is a joy for some, a necessity for most, and a nightmare for too many. The family is a limit to human emancipation and a limit to our imagination. The book argues that a transition to communism, that is a free society without class division or state power, would need to move beyond the family. I think Emmy's book is the best new contribution to communist theory I've read for quite a while, and I'm very glad to welcome her to Victor's Children. So would you like to introduce yourself? Sure. Um, Thank you so much for having me on, David. Uh, I appreciate your work and your thinking. Um, This is the first conversation uh, interview I've had really specifically focused on family abolition. I've been doing a lot of interviews the last year and a half uh, around Everything for Everyone, the novel that I co-wrote. And family abolition has certainly come up in a lot of conversations, and I've talked about papers I've written, but uh, this is what I hope is the first of many conversations about uh, my forthcoming book. So uh, my name is Emmy O'Brien. I live in Brooklyn, New York. Uh, I'm a trans woman and write communist theory and have been on the left for a while, for 25 some years. And I teach queer studies as an adjunct at uh, Gallatin, uh, a school of New York University, uh, and particularly interested in sort of the intersections of queerness and capitalism in a variety of ways. Uh, I also work as a psychotherapist. And Family Abolition is my second book, the first, Everything for Everyone, An Oral History of the New York Commune, 2052 to 2072, was co-authored and appeared from Common Notions last year. Um, and uh, it depicts a kind of speculative future of that includes family abolition and a successful global communist revolution. Um, yeah. 
yeah, I'll just say that I think everything for everyone is a wonderful book. And if listeners are interested, you should definitely find that book and you can read uh, the discussion about it. Um, it was published in Midnight Sun magazine and uh, the that was that's based on a recording, um, a podcast recording on the Solidarity Winnipeg podcast. So uh, mm-hmm. those are some leads for people who might want to follow up about that very interesting work of speculative fiction. So could you uh, tell listeners what led you to write Family Abolition? Uh, sure. Uh, most immediately, I did uh, coordinated a multi-city study on revolutionary feminism and helped edit a reader that we put together covering a century of thinking about gender and sexuality on the far left. And one of the things I noticed in working on that is in each sort of phase, each period we were looking in, uh, people had a lot of different kinds of critique of the family as a really important plank or dimension of communist thinking. And then that disappears for a while, particularly since the late 1970s. We've we've seen up until just a few years ago, a real diminishment of serious critiques of the family as a dimension of socialist politics. One of the things that struck me in working on that reader was what people meant by family kept seemed to vary tremendously. So I was very interested in developing a historically a historical, historical materialist analysis of trying to make sense of how the role of family has changed over the course of the history of capitalist development, particularly the role of the working class family, and how at different moments of mass working class struggle throughout history, that the critique of the family in its particular place in capitalist reproduction and white supremacy has played a really integral role in reflecting kind of the farthest limits of thinking about gender and sexual freedom within the revolutionary left. And so that kind of historical inquiry was very important to me. There were a number of contemporary issues that were also weighing on me a lot. I uh, coordinated the New York City Trans Oral History Project for many years and the interviews with trans New Yorkers about their lives, about their systems of taking care of each other and survival, the sort of strategies of mutual aid and chosen family that have been a huge part of New York City history, particularly in Black and Latina communities, but elsewhere as well, that that was really influential for me. Um, And I began over the course of years to think of family abolition as a way of more deeply and thoroughly integrating how we think about gender, sexuality, uh, our care relations to each other, our private domestic lives into broader questions about capitalist society and the possibility of communism. So that's that's that was a lot of my motivation in writing the book and coming to it, and it evolved over many years, and I'm, I'm really excited that it's finally coming out. Yeah, I'm very glad that it's out and coming out very soon. And I would just mention that it, what you say about the history of this is is interesting because when I came into the far left at the end of the 1980s, there was a kind of a trace of with some brief mention in the politics that I encountered, um, which was in the International Socialists, which. Uh, fairly orthodox, although we thought we were more unorthodox than we actually were, um, group um, at, the, at the time. You know, there was, this was part of the, the political horizon, but not something that was developed. And I do think that um, over the years, I came across this idea less, but it has begun to make a resurgence in the politics of the far left. So this is, it, it's an interesting time. Um, in the book, you argue that 
families, markets, and states make capitalism's ongoing reproduction possible. So can you share your thoughts on how the family in particular contributes to that process? Sure. So there's a major dimension of Marxist feminist thinking there called social reproduction theory that has done excellent work in drawing attention to the family, the nuclear family under capitalism, the working class family in particular, as reproducing the labor force necessary for capitalist society, as preparing and educating young people who become later become workers, and then also per- performing the social reproductive tasks on a day-to-day basis that enable people to make it back into work the next day. So that's a that's a whole dimension of the book and an important one in my mind. Uh, it's also this has a really personal dimension, you know, in thinking about um, my life and thinking about the lives of a lot of people I care about. That the family, it's well. Let me let me rephrase this. We can look around and think about what it takes to survive under the difficulties of racial capitalism that there's uh, so much violence and atomization and isolation, that the family plays a very powerful and very important role as a strategy of survival for working class people, people of color, all sorts of people, that that forming uh, private households, gathering a small number of people who you create long-term commitments to is, uh, is necessary in many ways to survive in capitalist markets and against racist state terror. And so it also functions very importantly in the questions of day-to-day reproduction for so many people, not just from the perspective of capital, but also from the perspective of people's survival. And I'm interested in sort of these sort of two complementing dimensions of thinking about reproduction, that it's both that working class people are both motivated to form and maintain families as a strategy of material survival in a really difficult world. And on the other hand, the forming and maintaining families as playing an integral role overall in the reproduction of capitalist society. You asked specifically about sort of, you mentioned the importance of markets and the state. And this plays an important role for me in thinking about ultimately later on in the book, uh, thinking about the different uh, forms that family abolition has taken, that at different historical moments, people have envisioned family abolition really differently. And for many, many readers, people imagine the family abolition as being the left somehow invading and destroying your ability to form nuclear families, and that leaving people at the mercy of the racist state and capitalist market forces. That we are, you know, people experience their families as under all sorts of pressures under racial capitalism. And so there's this real fear that if you get rid of the family, you will be left yeah, having to survive in, in a very hostile world. And I'm, I'm quite sympathetic to those fears, that, I, that I'm sympathetic to the reasons that people form families. And that ultimately, that family abolition is a way of envisioning overcoming class society, a way of envisioning the basis of collective human emancipation in a free society. It's a dimension of thinking about the communist struggle. And that that communist struggle, like in evaluating how we understand family abolition, that visions of family abolition, I argue, really need to incorporate the overcoming of the state and the market as integral to any possibility of collective human emancipation. There are lots of changes we 
can and should make to the family right now. There are lots of ways that we can expand the opportunities for people to live outside of the private household and outside of nuclear families right now. Lots of ways that we can uh, demand state reforms that validate and support the rich diversity of ways that people find to care for each other. But that ultimately family abolition is about imagining a society where you, who you love, who you care for, and who you choose to live with is not the basis of your material survival. And that necessitates also uh, critiquing and rethinking the consolidation of social reproduction in the form of the state um, and, and overcoming the wage form and market society as the basis of human life. Um yeah, those are yeah crucial ideas that I think we'll we'll come back to uh, in a few minutes. Um, but before we do that, I want to just zero in a little bit on ways that families have changed because I think this is one of the things. Like, there's so much there's so much change that um, many people just are not aware of, right? We there's so many ways in which we take the present for granted um, as if it's always existed this way. And families as they exist today are very different from what they were like in earlier periods of capitalist history as well as very different from what they were like in societies before capitalism, both those that were class divided and not. Um, so in the world today, in our era of capitalism, maybe roughly, you could say, since the end of the post-Second World War economic boom in the mid-1970s, um, what would you highlight in terms of the most important ways in which families have changed? Uh, sure. Um, so I, I take the post-World War II period in North America and the kind of rise of suburbia and a white nuclear family norm as the pinnacle of a trend that had been unfolding for multiple decades of expanding access to the bourgeois family to a housewife-based family form that had previously, earlier in the 19th century, really only been accessible to capitalist families and expanding that to become accessible to a substantial tier of more respectable, more stable white working class people. Uh, and they, effectively, the creation of what became known as the middle class. And that that had unfolded, begun to unfold at the end of the 19th century in industrial centers in Europe and had really lasting consequences for the socialist movement. That uh, the sort of creation of the working class family as something that could resemble the bourgeoisie, the material success of, um, of the socialist movement in being able to win, for example, um, wages high enough to be able to keep for a, a housewife to stay at home and not work in the market. That this historical emergence of the working class housewife-based family form uh, was a really split the socialist movement and the working class and created a divide between respectable working class people and the poor, queer, black, colonial, all these excluded others that were omitted from uh, a, a great deal of socialist organizations, labor unions, and the kind of the, the formation of a respectable working class. Um, and so this is a history I'm really, I trace at the end of the 19th century, and then it's unfolding in the 20th century. Um, I, and then after World War II, both the sort of the massive economic development of the United States through the construction of the suburbs, 
the construction, the centrality of the family ideal as a part of a regressive rolling back of the gains of Black people and LGBT people or queer people in the post-war era and the sort of reassertion of a kind of gender conservatism linked to a politics of racist, homophobic capitalist development in the U.S. And so that that that's a history that I trace. And then the rebellion against that uh, in the form first of the civil rights movement, and then looking at the broader context of rebellions that unfolded at the end of the 1960s and early 1970s, and that many of these rebellions sought to overcome the limits of the white suburban family form as they saw it. And I trace this in the gay liberation struggles in radical feminism and uh, importantly in black feminism and welfare rights struggles in the 1970s, that these were all rebellions uh, around class, around gender, but they were all partially in one way or another rebellions against a certain kind of family ideal. But it's not those rebellions that ultimately led to the dissolution of the housewife-based family form for working class people. It's the changes in capitalist society and what I argue is a protracted crisis in capitalist profitability uh, since the 1970s, you know, what's widely called neoliberalism or other things, that there have been uh, huge economic changes in the lives of working class people that have effectively eliminated the economic possibility of working class people being able to survive on one adult's wages. So where from the 1890s on, there had been this kind of split in the working class movement between like more respectable white workers and more marginal um, excluded workers that since the 1970s, we've seen a real erosion of the, uh, of the possibility of working class people forming normative families. Um, and that that has had both a really negative dimension and a positive dimension, that it's gone along with a lot more people choosing to marry later, choosing, being able to choose when to have kids and perhaps choosing to have kids later, being able to pursue queer relationships, being able to pursue non-normative decisions about how they form households, but that that has come at the, a real cost and the cost of poverty, a cost of increasing dependence on, on the wage, and I argue increasing dependence on the private household altogether with the uh, decay of welfare supports and other means of surviving outside of the nuclear family that people uh, might be able to make more non-traditional decisions about who they love and live with, but they're not able to do so on one wage earner's they're not able to do so outside of a private, the structure of the private household. And the people are very, very dependent often on who they're related to or who they live with, even if there's been an expansion in freedom of the kind of decisions that people are able to make about their intimate relationships and how to organize their families. So that's a very brief uh, account of a long history that, that unfolds over the course of the book. And I, I think we sort of arrive at the present moment where people feel across the board uh, a very intense precarity, a very difficult survival that, of course, is much worse for poor families, for people of color, 
um, and that the sort of idea of being able to form and maintain a family effectively relies on inherited wealth and is extremely difficult for the vast majority of working class people. Yeah. And I want to then move to the way in which the book, in the book, you argue that there's more to the family than what you write as a private household that organizes forms of privatized care. So in a broader sense, what else do we have to understand about families, do you think? Uh, sure. So one very important dimension to the book that I've been talking about is thinking about the family as a as a link in the chain of capitalist reproduction. And that I draw from social reproduction theory. But I also am really interested in uh, engaging Black studies, Black feminisms, and occurrence of queer studies that uh, also recognize the family as a normative ideal that is deeply tied up with the history of white supremacy and property that is used to violently police uh, uh African-Americans, Black people broadly in Europe and Canada, uh, migrants, Native people, and it has been used as part of uh, dynamics of white supremacy and genocide. And I looked at that historically in the 19th century, looking at the role of allotment policy in Canada and the United States, the role, the importance of the white family in settler colonialism. I look at the plantation family and the way that slavery, natal, what's called natal alienation, really um, fragmented the care bonds between enslaved Black people. Um, I look at that unfolding, thinking about the dynamics of white supremacy and the experiments in different forms of love and care during Black Reconstruction, and then their violent rollback during Jim Crow and the kind of enforcement of white supremacy that was built into sharecropping. And then I'm very interested in the, the ongoing role of the family policing system in the state uh, intervening in destroying and eroding uh, strategies of care between Black people, between migrants, between Indigenous people, and that this sort of history of external violence, often from the racist state, has playing a very, very important role in the history of the family. And in my mind, family abolition has to be both the overcoming of a, a universal dependency on the private household, but also a destruction and radical reimagining of the racial politics of a family norm being the means through which care relations are evaluated and policed. Um, and then I that I also link that to thinking about the internal violence within families, that the isolation within the private household, the, the dynamics of privacy that have been such an important part of nuclear, the formation and consolidation of nuclear families, the dynamics of patriarchy and heteronormativity, the imposition of gender norms on children. Right now, there's, you know, a lot of news about the right wing trying to roll back the ability of trans children to be able to transition, trying to criminalize transition altogether. And it's um, just, it's been magnificent and very beautiful for me to see over the course of the last two decades, the proliferation of children coming out as trans and uh, pursuing genders that that resonate with them. And that that I think is one of the most positive things that's happened in our society in many ways. And that that, you know, is, has been taken up in this far right panic and attack on trans children. But even the, I, the way even a sort of liberal perspective uh, is defending trans children through asserting the rights 
of parents who want to support their child's transition. And that's a great thing to do. Of course, we should support parents who want to, who, who are supporting their children's transition and defend them against right-wing attack. But that leaves a, another whole question about what happens to all the trans children who grow up, who are unfortunate enough to be born into really transphobic and violent families. And, and that's a fate that many, many people face that, that one's family is the most likely place that uh, we are to be raped, to be violently beaten, to be murdered, that the family is uh, organized as a site that enables a tremendous amount of violence. And we have very little recourse in how to deal with that, that Child Protective Services is an extremely racist system that does very little to actually protect children. Um, And relying on the state to sort of intervene in in nuclear families has really not been successful. And that we need to think much more deeply about the sorts of social forms that could actually enable gender freedom for children. So I think, yes, the book does look at the this multidimensional, highly contradictory set of relationships that we have in, in families as they exist today. Um, and then as you see it, the political response to all of this should be a perspective of family abolition. And I think it's very thoughtful the way in which the book notes, and I'll I'll quote here, family abolition is not a slogan to rally around nor a platform that can easily win people over. And that made me think uh, in some ways, perhaps it's a bit like the idea of degrowth, which raises important ideas that are not easily understood because of the extent to which today most people assume growth and family are both inevitable features of any imaginable society. Although I do also recognize that I think family abolition in the way you advance it is more coherent than most forms of, of degrowth politics. Uh, so could you then maybe uh, say a little bit more, you've said some already, but ex- explain more for listeners about how you understand what family abolition means. And importantly, and I think this is again, one of the great features of the book, what it doesn't mean. Sure. So um, a lot of people, when they hear about family abolition and engage some of my work, one of the main resonances that comes up is the idea of chosen family or non-traditional families or trying to form alternative arrangements for households. Uh, and I think that's a, a great thing. It should be encouraged. It should be facilitated. It should be materially supported by state policy, by uh, whatever resources we have available. And I think fighting and defending alternative forms of care relations is a very important part of uh, supporting queer people, uh, fighting racism, supporting Blacks and migrant survival strategies. Uh, That is not ultimately the focus of my book. I do have a chapter about it, and uh, it is important to me, and it certainly has been important in my personal life. But that ultimately I see forming chosen families, forming alternative systems of care has been um, exceedingly difficult to sustain under racial capitalism, that they come under a lot of the same pressures that nuclear families do, the the atomizing effect of state violence, the atomizing effect of labor market competition, that, you know, there are many, many historical examples where people form group houses, but then if somebody needs to move for a job, who moves with them? Who goes with them? Or deliberate communities that sort of try to gloss over the significant differences of people's material backgrounds or class backgrounds. I grew up in the Pacific Northwest, where there's a long history of hippies forming deliberate communities in the 1970s. And then when there'd be a crisis or there'd be a challenge, some people would have an material safety net to fall back on from 
often their extended family, and other people wouldn't and might end up in prison or uh, uh, lost in drug addiction or um, all sorts that, that there's a fragmenting, stratifying effect to the dynamics of racial capitalism that make it very difficult to build and sustain alternative family forms. So that's that's one thing that I grapple with in the book and try to think about, um, that I support chosen families, I support alternative family arrangements, I think we should pursue them, but they run into real limits. And ultimately, family abolition will require a profound remaking of the state and the market. It requires an overcoming of racial capitalism. And I argue that family abolition is a necessary dimension of trying to theorize how a revolutionary overcoming of class society and a commitment to uh, communist emancipation, to envisioning a society rooted in from each according to their needs to each according to their ability, that that necessarily would require a radical transformation in how we live together and how we care for each other in our private domestic lives. And I uh, am very interested in many historical examples when large numbers of working class people have been in rebellion together, how that begins to transform the intimate relations between people. So in terms of what family abolition isn't, I'm very adamant that family abolition is not promoting, supporting, or enabling racist states intervening in, and destroying care relations between people of color. That uh, the of course, child abuse is a reality in a lot of different spaces and a lot of different communities, and we have to find ways of combating it and challenging it. But the Child Protective Services is a terrible way of going about that and has done a tremendous amount of harm in Black families. Um, uh, certainly, the history of child separation in Indigenous uh, residential schools is one of genocide and tremendous racism and settler colonialism that separating migrants, uh, migrant people, adults from their children at the U.S.-Mexico border, for example, is a really uh, terrible, nightmarish policy. So being very adamant that family abolition is not the state intervening and uh, in care relations. I'm also adamant that it's not a sort of promotion or proliferation of uh, people living alone, living in isolation, uh, rejecting their families of origin. Of course, some people need to reject their families of origin as, as really oppressive and violent spaces, and we need to support that. But that uh, we, to survive in this world, we need lots of care, and we need lots of different ways of caring for each other. And some of those forms of care we call family, and some of them we don't. But when that those forms of care are helpful to people, are positive for people, that's something we need to encourage to facilitate, to support. Uh, and when they're not, of course, people need support to be able to get outside of it. So, you know, ideas about kind of changing forms of wage relations or even uh, expanding. Um, yeah. So family abolition is ultimately not about increasing isolation. I also am interested, I critique at a couple of points, I don't develop it as far as I could, but that there have been efforts at 
um, creating communes, creating alternative ways of parenting, creating alter- alternative forms of life. But because those haven't happened in the context of communist insurrection and class struggle, that they ultimately rely on dynamics of settler colonialism and land occupation uh, to be able to be implemented. That because they're not about seizing land and property from capitalists, that they need to seize it from someone else. And here I look, mention the kibbutzes in Israel and the history of racist Zionist settler colonialism in Palestine as an example of sort of experiments with parenting that I, you know, have multiple disagreements with, but the most important of which was that it depended on the displacement of Palestinians and the settler colonial state of Israel. And there were many examples of utopian socialist communities in Canada and the United States in the 19th century that similarly relied on the genocidal displacement of indigenous people. So those are some of my arguments about uh, I, forms of family abolition or or rejecting family that I critique, that I reject in the book. And then I'm very interested in, as an alternative to that, in the ways that people care about each other in our world now, and then how class struggle, how mass rebellion, how Black and Indigenous struggle, how queer struggle can envision, promote, and pursue alternative forms of care and forms of care that are more universal, more accessible to people, that demands uh, that are less constraining in how people form intimate relations uh, and care forms of care that can sustain and reproduce struggle. Yeah, I think again, one of the most interesting parts of the book is uh, where it writes about experiences that hint at the possibility of family abolition experiences that you call insurgent social reproduction. So could you talk a bit about those? Sure. So this is this comes out of my sort of, I tried to theorize what some of the principles of what I call communist social reproduction. How is it that people could survive, could form intimate bonds in a free society? And uh, and my interest in visions of family abolition that reject the expansion and consolidation of power in the state or reject uh, increasing dependence on the market as as alternatives to the family. And so I, I, coming out of that, one of the things I began to realize was the potential links of uh, what I call insurgent social reproduction. So these are moments that large numbers of people are in rebellion together, usually working class, poor people, often people of color. And uh, when these rebellions take on a sustained form, trying to reproduce themselves from one week to the next, from one month to the next, often these are quite temporary uh, and uh, tied up with a much broader struggle that uh, pulls together thousands or millions of people. And uh, during these times, these moments of large-scale working-class rebellion, what happens in how people care for each other and what happens to the tasks that used to be relegated to the private household? So thinking about cooking and childcare and the arrangements of people sleeping, uh, questions of safety, right? And so I, uh, I'm 
there are many examples of this. And one of the ones that I focus on in the book is protest camps. And they rattle off a bunch of examples of protest camps that I've had the chance to visit and then others that uh, I've been inspired by that I didn't have a chance to visit. So these are often temporary. They're on people living on barricades, living in, on occupied roads in protracted struggle against the state and capital. Um, to some extent, we can see this in the movement of the squares, in ancient forest defense struggles, in struggles against pipelines and destruction of indigenous lands. We uh, These protracted occupations where people might join them with their families or bring their children, people might participate in a way that uh, draws in their pre-existing care relations but that the old forms of private social reproduction isolated within the family begin to break down and become collectivized. They become communized. They become shared. And so thinking about protest kitchens, thinking about child care, a collective child care arranged at protest sites, thinking about how people arrange sleeping uh, to be able to defend themselves against uh, might be rapists within the camp, might be uh, agents, uh, violent state agents from outside. And the example that I open the book with uh, is the Oaxaca commune. So a teacher protest in Oaxaca that led to an extended period of barricades throughout Oaxaca uh, as people defended themselves against the Mexican military, far-right militias, uh, and indigenous women began to form, uh, be played a central role in the rebellion in occupied radio stations and reproducing life on the barricades. And one of the multiple forms of counter-revolution that stopped the Oaxaca commune was their husbands insisting that they come back and serve them in the private household. And I think this is a really striking example of a kind of moment that women, uh, step beyond the private household as a necessary dimension of rebellion, of reproducing the struggle. They collectivize social life and they expand the care relations within the family into a broader world of struggle. And that that sustains the very possibility of rebellion and the reassertion of, in this case, indigenous, working class, poor families, the reassertion of patriarchy and the private household as being a counter-revolution and, and a stop as a derailment of insurgent social reproduction. And for me, these examples of insurgent repro- social reproduction, uh, to a limited extent, prefigure the kinds of collective communes that I imagine could replace the private household. So living arrangements of a couple hundred people, maybe a large apartment building, a city block, where food is collective and cooked communally, where there's per- readily available provisions for collective child care, whether, where um, questions of ma- the material consumption and the organizing of material life are able to be made collectively by people. And then within those material conditions, people might form romantic partnerships, they might choose to raise children, but that if you separate from your spouse or a child, you know, has a violent falling out with their parents or whatever it is that they're, that because the economic unit is not the private household, but this broader organization of the commune, 
that it becomes possible to make other um, needed decisions based on people's specific circumstances uh, where everyone can get the care that they need, everyone can get the material support that they need, and it doesn't have to be organized around the private household. So it doesn't affect people's material conditions to make alternative choices about how they, who they want to love and who they want to live with. Um, so that's that's the sort of gesture, the kind of speculative future I gesture at. We flesh it out a bit in everything for everyone. Um, but I see that uh, they forms of that emerging spontaneously in the context of mass rebellion. Yeah, and I think when I was reading the book, in addition to um, giving me a deeper understanding of the Oaxaca commune experience than I'd had before, so I certainly read about what had happened in 2006 and that struggle, but not at all appreciated the dimension of the counter-revolutionary role of patriarchy in that particular struggle and so on. Um, the, the broader point that I think... Um, the book makes it very effectively is just by looking at these moments of high levels of class struggle of insurgency and how they begin to generate these experiences that give us um, a basis on which to uh, think about, you know, communist social reproduction and talk, think about uh, how these things might prefigure very different ways of, of living in a free society. I think it's, it's great, but you, you mentioned briefly um, earlier, but I want to pick up on this issue uh, now about how having a revolutionary perspective that includes family abolition doesn't mean not fighting for reforms within capitalist society as it exists today. So can you talk a bit about what you mean when you write in the book about progressive anti-family reforms um, and how they're significant for a politics that recognizes, on the one hand, um, that we need to fight for these things in the here and now, but that communism would never be achieved through a series of reforms, that it is by necessity a, a project of social revolution? Sure. So um, I have a chapter where uh, centered around what could or should be done in the present, right? So I'm not advocating people necessarily rush out and form these communes. I argue that they that they need to be a part of a communist transformation of society. Um, yeah, obviously, people should pursue a diversity of care relations that work for them uh, as best they can. And so in that chapter, I include some attention to thinking about chosen family and alternate family structures. I also uh, cite a lot of examples of what I call progressive anti-family reforms. So I came to this through my history in queer organizing at a moment that gay marriage was really taking over the queer movement in the United States and was at the exclusion and the cost of things like trans rights. And I've written a lot about that elsewhere. A chunk of my dissertation is about it. And I'm so I'm interested, um, and in the context of writing about gay marriage, about the limitations of gay marriage, the ways that it didn't serve the needs of working class queer people, there were some very powerful thinking, some very powerful examples that linked the struggle of queer people in the diversity of forms of caring for each other to the history of the welfare rights struggle and the history of Black feminism. And that's that was very influential for me. And they made the argument that people care about each other in a lot of different ways. And what we, the extent to which we can win wrestle reforms from the state, they should do two things. And I, and I provide many examples of both of these. One is to legally acknowledge, validate, and support the supportive care relations that people are able to form. So there that, um, 
There are many non-traditional parenting arrangements that people organize around uh, for raising children, for taking care of each other in materially difficult circumstances. And right now, the state is very limited in acknowledging marriage and occasionally domestic partnership uh, and doesn't recognize the many, many other ways that people care for each other. So someone... You know, it's not uh, that uncommon in poor Black families for women to raise children with their sisters or with their mothers or with a dear friend. It's not uncommon for queer people to have um, uh, multiple sort of aunts and uncles organized around being very active in caring for children. There's some very powerful examples of the kind of care relations coming out of the mass death and crisis around AIDS the strategies of care that extended beyond people's immediate romantic partnerships. Uh, So this is in the context where people might be quite alienated from their extended families, but have become sick. And the long-term forms of care that are really an important part of the history of queerness. Um, And that all of these should be validated and supported by the state. It should be very easy the extent to which the state has any concern about other adults who might play important roles in parenting, in medical decisions, and household decisions. It should be very easy for any working class person to cheaply and quickly be able to designate the other adults that they are interdependent with. So, uh, if, for example, if two people want to stay together in the shelter system, it's very difficult to do if they're not married. You know, so (laughs) two people, even if they're not sleeping together, should be able to easily say, we care for each other, we are interdependent, and where we go, we should be able to stay together as a married couple might. So that's one. And that that is about undoing some of the violence of the family placing system, some of the normative regimes around relationships that are heteronormative and homophobic. And then the other kind of set of reforms that I'm really interested in is materially expanding the ability of people to choose to survive outside of their nuclear families. So that's about expanding welfare supports, uh, access to affordable uh, housing, access to collective decommodified social goods like public education, universal health care, that right now a lot of people, including children, many people with disabilities, many um, women in, uh, in impressive relationships, many, many people are dependent, materially dependent on their immediate family members to survive. And this places very severe limits on people's range of ability to make choices to live or love differently. That because so much of the material basis survival in racial capitalism depends on the private household, People do not get to really make choices about what works for them, what is supportive for them, and that that enables and facilitates many forms of child abuse and sexual violence and um, uh, abuse of people with disabilities, abuse of elders, abuse of people who who have very limited options for escape, and that that 
the left can and should fight for social democratic reforms, the expansion of social welfare programs, but not just to like support families or defend families, but even to support people from being able to flee their families and to enable people to form very different kinds of care relations that might not resemble a family to outside observers at all. Thanks. So I want to now raise the question about, uh, you know, why we should be spending any time at all, given the state of the world, thinking about the future in the way that this book does, because we're obviously living in in most parts of the world in conditions that are very far from being pre-revolutionary, unfortunately. Um, And you, in the book, agree with Marx and Engels uh, that any future revolutionary society will be made only by those who actually build it. So then what is important? um, Why is it important for those of us who would identify as socialists or communists to actually spend a bit of time, more than a bit of time, thinking about these questions, uh, including what you know, it would involve to move beyond the family? Sure. Um, I think that the family has, uh, for a while now, has had a very strong grip on the consciousness of socialist communists, uh, that it has constrained and shaped how the left has thought about the world that we live in right now and the world that we're fighting for. Um, To some extent, in some contexts, I recognize that people are engaged in concrete specific campaigns and using rhetoric of family abolition might alienate some contingencies in some cases. But I think it's very dangerous for the left to take normative assumptions about what working class people believe or what they care about and then imposing that and restricting the kinds of visions that we're willing to talk about we're willing to pursue and we're willing to theorize that there are a lot of examples of this blanket condemnation of thinking beyond the family. Uh, and, and that I think are very costly for queer people, for lots of people that we are not envisioning what uh, a free society could be like, but we're also limiting the range of ways that we think about struggles in the present that uh, struggles to go beyond the family, the way that various struggles move people outside of the family, I think are a very powerful dimension of struggle as it unfolds in the present. And I cited the example of trans youth, I cited the example of of the Oaxaca commune and forms of collective social reproduction that emerged there, that these are struggles happening in the present that are not confined ideologically solely within the family. And to understand them that way is to not do them justice, to not recognize the extent to which rebellions not only take the form of people like defending the right to be able to form a family, but also take the form of people yearning to go beyond the kinds of normative care relations that we define as family and beyond the private household altogether. So that that's a whole dimension. It's a way of understanding struggles as they are unfolding in the present. And then I'm also a believer that even though um, talking about the future is not about creating a blueprint for people to implement, right? I'm not necessarily by any means imagining that some future struggle will read either of my books and then try to implement them as a plan for free society in the way that some utopian socialists did and Marx very rightly critiqued them. But that it, how we theorize what a free society could look like could mean, could have very powerful implications for how we organize now 
and how we talk and engage now. So one example of that is I, I think the abolition of police is probably not ever going to be possible in a society based on private property. Uh, I think police abolition is a revolutionary horizon and that there are all sorts of reforms that we can fight for in the present that talking about police abolition as a revolutionary horizon draws attention to. So the need to massively defund the police, the need to significantly expand uh, radical alternatives to policing, the need to develop other strategies for addressing violence and community-based conflict, that talking about the abolition of the police as a revolutionary horizon, as many, many people, young people started to do around the George Floyd rebellion, becomes a way of evaluating, critiquing, and rethinking the kinds of reforms that we act for in the present. So drawing attention to the limits and problems of things like uh, giving the police more sensitivity trainings or body cameras and giving them more money in order to do that, right? That recognizing the police itself as a deeply racist, destructive, violent institution at its core is a necessary analytic dimension of being able to identify what sort of immediate reform proposals are likely to do way more harm than good. Um, And similarly, in evaluating the kinds of social welfare programs that we want to fight for, the sorts of state recognition that we want to fight for, that that social welfare supports, we need those that enable people to leave their families if they choose, to live differently if they choose, and not programs that further reinforce, that restrict people into normative family regimes. And I also think that there are a lot more people out there who are recognized that something is very wrong and very limited about depending on the private household for for our survival. And the COVID, I think, really drew people's attention to that, that trying to raise a child with the labor of one or two or three adults is grossly inadequate, that we are all dependent on much broader systems of support in order to be able to survive. Um, And that we, you know, being trapped with your family at home is actually really quite horrific for many, many people. Uh, And that a left that continually hammers away at idealizing the family as the only legitimate means of organizing social life, I think ultimately uh, doesn't speak to the many, many people who don't feel comfortable in their families, who want to live differently, who want to find broader and alternative forms of care and recognize that the private household is not a sustainable way of organizing social life. Yeah, I think it is really important to be thinking about this because we, we're in a historical moment where we both have you know, the, the horrors of capitalism being uh, more widely understood by you know, people and, and there's a, a sense of a growing yearning for something other than capitalism. And yet it's so difficult for people to think about a world beyond capitalism. And I think this extends to then you know, people taking the market for granted as something which must inevitably exist yeah. or taking state power as something which must always exist and then the family as well. So I think any renewal of a genuinely socialist or communist politics needs to be actually thinking about the transcendence of each of those three. And then your book really contributes to that, um, you know, by understanding the integration of those but and focusing on the, the, the family within that. Uh, and so I do think one of its best features is what it has to say about the kind of society that's ultimately possible, necessary, and worth fighting for, uh, which should be our political horizon. 
And the book says this should be a society with, I'll quote here, a commitment to making non-alienated care available to all. Family abolition is the dimension of care specific to a classless society. A free society is one built on mutual care. And certainly this spoke to me. Uh, I've always felt that um, this kind of transformative understanding of, of care is central to socialist politics. And even though it's not something that was, you know, written about at any length, when I became a socialist, um, it did seem to me to be part of the, the vision. And I remember that, uh, again, this would be in the, the late 1980s, uh, a political button that I acquired in the group that I had joined uh, said Red's Care, which was both a pun on Red Scare, uh, you know, challenging this because this is before the collapse of Stalinism. Uh, but I think it was also just trying to challenge the idea that, you know, revolutionaries are a bunch of uh, uncaring people um, and that it's somehow our vision is about um, bread, but not roses, uh, or, you know, only one rather than both. Um, and yet, it, you know, once we understand capitalism as a society that's founded on alienated labor and social atomization and competition and so on, uh, and once we recognize the way that oppression distorts our relations, you know, with each other in, in so many ways, that, that then I think understanding that, you know, the society we're fighting for is about uh, changing the way, not just giving people, of course, access to water, food and shelter um, and control in their workplaces and so on, but also fundamentally about, um, you know, allowing us to care for each other in ways that we're unable to under capitalism because of the tyranny of the market and the state and oppression. Um, And yet that is not a vision that's often really articulated um, as much as it needs to be. And I think despite, you know, the necessity to think about how we're going to actually, you know, adapt to climate change and how we're going to actually fight for a, a transition from fossil fuels and so on, there's a lot of stuff about, you know, human survival in a life and death kind of way that has to be part of our politics today. But that has to, I think, be inseparable from from a politics of care. So I think it was, I think this is really important in, in your book. And close to the end of the book, there's a really interesting discussion about Martin Luther King Jr.'s idea of a beloved community and Marx's idea of uh, Gemeinwesen. So perhaps just to wrap up this discussion, could you talk about how uh, those ideas um, that you discuss at the end of the book are, are different from the overwhelming talk about community that we hear today. You know, we hear so much about community. It's like these, one of the most overused words. Um, there used to be an anarchist uh, restaurant um, and bookstore in, in Winnipeg where I live. Um, and inside one of the washrooms there, there was a poster, you know, facing you that said, oh, it's all about community, right? It can be quite an insipid thing. Um, and yet it represents people grasping for something or, or you know, yeah. trying to think about something. So, um, can you talk about the, those themes of community that you closed the book with and why they matter for those of us who yearn for liberation today? Yeah, um, that was all quite beautifully said. Thank you, David. Um, I Both care and community, I think, are uh, deeply alienated under capitalism and take really quite destructive and often um, very harmful forms and are also concepts that are really overly laden with a romantic Uh, They take the place on some level of people being able to talk about communism or being able to think about a free society that we imagine community um, when we what we wish for is to think beyond the dynamics of racial capitalism. Um, And I'm I'm very skeptical uh, to the extent to which community exists at all, that people form communities, they do their best, they sort of form underground music scenes or networks of mutual care or networks of friends or um, uh, 
you know, sort of doing their best, cobbling together relationships, but those are extremely transitory that I think they often require the considerable labor and enthusiasm and free time of young people. They uh, rarely su- uh, survive various kinds of shocks and difficulties. Um, I was involved in writing a book that is coming out shortly from PINCO called uh, 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 Investigating the Concept of Accountability. And in our closing essay, we talk about the extent to which uh, wanting to hold people accountable for interpersonal harm within the left often relies on an idea of community, the community as the alternative to to using the court system, right, or something like that. And people try to hold people accountable through community, but the community doesn't quite exist. It sort of unravels the moment people are trying to rely on it in the crisis. And that ultimately the kinds of communities that we yearn for are not going to be possible under capitalism. That they, that communities our working class communities precisely do not have the property and means of production to be able to assure their material survival. That communities are either sort of organized as like authoritarian property-based cults in various ways that are focused on their own reproduction at the exclusion of the outside world, or if they are you know, actually inclusive places that working class people can participate in, that they lack the material means of being able to persist in uh, the tremendous violence of racial capitalism. Um, And that when we speak of community, we are yearning for something else. We are yearning for something that we have not yet figured out how to create, and ultimately something that will require the overcoming of class society. That are that what we mean by community is our yearning for communism. And I'm interested in two concepts that I explore at the end of the book. One is uh, when Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, talking about beloved community. And he was very explicit the beloved community is an envision of a, a horizon of human transformation, a possibility that emerges over the course of struggle and the radical transformation of society. He was particularly interested in the overcoming of white supremacy, anti-Blackness, racial segregation as a phenomenon, and people being able to encounter each other with love with care in a way that's not possible in our world right now. And so I I trace some of the history of King using the idea of beloved community and the role that it played in his thinking and the role that it's played in Black studies since then, but that there's a limitation there. I mean, I I think King is a very, very important thinker that's underappreciated in sections of the left, but that he um, is not as explicit about the extent to which the obstacles to beloved community are not just the divisions between people, but also the impersonal system of domination that characterizes capitalism that rules over human life. And that Marx, and you pronounced it better than I could, I really have to get the German down for German Weissen, um, that Marx, uh, he uses this word community that later becomes important for Kamat and Bordiga and others, that uh, Marx uses this idea of community um, 
not as something that already exists, that is already readily available to people, but something that emerges over the course of struggle that is a generalized and shared space of human realization, of of fulfilling our possibilities as humanity, and something that emerges as the horizon of communism. Um, So it's a vision of community that recognizes that it's only possible in the rebellion, in the um, overcoming of class society and capital as an impersonal force that rules over social life. So it's a concept that appears in his early work, uh, that reappears a handful of times, and that uh, has been, I think, underappreciated by currents of the Marxist tradition. Um, but recognizing community as a revolution, like him, as a revolutionary horizon, rather than as sort of a normative thing that's readily available for us to all fall back on. Um, and so this is how I close the book as sort of this a community of red care, of red love, sort of thinking about care. Uh, not in the highly alienated, very limited, very distorted ways that we're able to live it right now, but that family abolition is commitment to creating the material conditions for society built on universal human care. And that, of course, is central to human emancipation, which is what it's all about. So thank you, Emmy. Uh, I just want to remind people, uh, the book is Family Abolition, Capitalism and the Communizing of Care. And it's going to be published in June 2023 by uh, Pluto Press. So make sure you get a hold of that. Thanks so much for coming on to Victor's Children to talk about it. My pleasure. It was an honor to be here. And I really appreciate the thoughtfulness of your questions and comments. And please keep up the excellent work. That's it for this episode of Victor's Children. I'd like to thank Jonathan Croker, the producer of Victor's Children, without whom the podcast wouldn't be possible. I'd also like to thank Posey Legg, who designed the graphic for Victor's Children. If you found the episode worth listening to, please do tell other people about the show, since word-of-mouth recommendations are especially helpful. If you don't subscribe through your preferred podcast app, please do. And while you're there, please give the show a high rating. It helps to promote us. If you have a suggestion for an episode or some other kind of constructive feedback, feel free to be in touch with me. You can contact me through victorschildren at gmail.com.